0: Hitler goes to vote for himself, the cheers speak louder than words. And with the Fuhrer, millions of Germans go to the poll. And everyone who votes receives a badge inscribed with the words freedom and bread. With only one party to vote for, it's hardly an election as we know them in this country. But all Germany seems to be anxious to show its solidarity behind the dictator and its approval of his policy. And then the votes are counted, and very soon it becomes obvious that even allowing for the special circumstance, it's a striking Nazi victory. And all over Germany the flags go out, and men and women pause in their work, and the sirens screech a toast to the fatherland. So once more, the mystery man of European politics gets his own way in his own country.
1: Thank you, Tanner. Welcome back. David Penn here. The Professor Penn Podcast. And uh, thank God for another day living in uh, interesting times. I want to thank Free People Radio for creating this platform and for helping us form this community together. Our sponsor, TireGet.com. Everyone needs tires. TireGet.com has everything you need in tires, and it's a win-win because you'll get what you need and you'll fund the movement. So uh, that's a critical issue. And then PrecinctStrategy.com. That's PrecinctStrategy.com for a tutorial in how to get into the game of politics, which I think is critical. And we started out with a, a cold open in uh, 1936, the dictator Hitler being reelected unanimously by the German people. It's a little bit like a uni party. Doesn't matter what side of the equation you vote for here, you get the Uni Party. Well, they were a little bit more crude about it at that time in 1936. They had a dictator, Adolf Hitler, and uh, he was unanimously reelected, you know, at the polls by the German people. And look at all those people in the streets. Do you think they paid all those people to come out for those scenes? Or do you think it had something to do with people being hungry? And suddenly, the dictator was delivering bread to them. Freedom and bread looked like some very adoring crowds. Very adoring crowds. Dictators can be loved. So today, uh, we're going to start out with um, we're going to start out with what I think we need to do with these dictators. These dictators that are um, really in control of our country and control of the people. They're in control of the message. They're in control of the medicine. They're in control of the distribution. They're in control of almost everything, the cash. You know, these dictators, uh, we call them, what do we call them? Elected officials, uh, global governors, uh, leaders of corporations, media. These people are all, in my opinion, complicit in um, what we called the science of humanism. And I call it the science of humanism with a tongue in cheek. It's a religion and uh, this this concept of humanism we talked about it for many many podcasts about what it is what it came from but what it is is it it, it erects the human being as the uh, you know f- the only arbiter of human affairs it removes the concept of god or the previous 6000 years of judeo christian tradition from our western culture and um, uh, i you know i've said if you read their materials What they're interested in doing is reducing the population radically, evolving the species through positive eugenics, and that evolution really involves, you know, biotechnology and, you know, artificial intelligence, actually evolving the human being, homo sapiens, past what we are today to a completely new species, which that's the positive side. Of course, the negative side is, you know, called genocide or what we would call eugenics, negative eugenics. So I'm just going to assume for the purposes of history and for a prayer that we are politically able to defeat these people. And we can do it politically. And we do it politically by getting off the couch and getting involved in politics. As I say, this is an all-hands-on-deck moment. And let's say all of us just, it's a miracle. You get up today and you call your local political party and you just go in and you start working away because you believe in human freedom and human well being. And we get down the road here, an election cycle or two, and we've won. And now we have control of all the investigative powers of our government the Department of Justice, the Congress, FBI, CIA. We're in control. And when I say we, I mean we the people. We have supplanted the globalists who view me as inventory. Well, what are we going to do with these people? I mean, what are we going to do with these people? Well, let's see for a second what we did with them before. Let's remember, we've been here before. Today is going to be a lot about um, drawing out the conclusion that uh, communism and uh, socialism and Nazism and liberalism They're all political strategies, all intended to uh, operationalize the religion of humanism. So what do we do with these people? Because they're really, as it's turned out, quite anti-human and quite genocidal. Well, we we know what happened in World War II. We know. Hitler got in control. He was in control 36. He started a world war. He had his good reasons for starting it. From his side, remember that street corner? from his corner of the street that world war made perfect sense and it you know that's something that we should inquire into why did he do it because people call him a madman he wasn't a madman he was a cultic follower of a religion that religion was humanism nazism nazism was his political strategy of operationalizing the religion of humanism and they had positive eugenics in Germany, and they had negative eugenics, which was a huge genocide. And when uh, the world was motivated by, you know, because people got off the couch, right? Here, you know, here comes Nazism. Whoa. The whole world motivated around defeating Nazism and another uh, humanist uh, kind of endeavor over there in, uh, in Japan, the Empire of Japan, the world got really motivated. And defeated these countries force of arms it was you know, a huge bloodletting 88 million people died in five years and when it was over people wanted to parade the criminals up on the stage and what were they going to do with them tanner can you play this next bit? verdict at nuremberg please
2: no chances were being taken at nuremberg as the hour of verdicts and sentences approached a wide military cordon ringed the courthouse and many additional troops were on guard to deal with any eventuality. But no reports of any attempts to interfere with the course of justice were received. Even if demonstrations, attacks, or rescue attempts had been contemplated, it doesn't look as if they'd have met with much success. There's
1: a little hole in the audio here, in this old tape. It's going to start up again here momentarily.
2: ...attitude. Others kept up an appearance of arrogance to the end. Crazy arrogance in the case of Hess. There was much handshaking, and for many of them, this was the last opportunity, for now the verdicts were to be pronounced.
1: Looks very austere. Very serious, sober. A trial.
2: The Before the verdicts on individuals were given, Lord Justice Lawrence spoke for the tribunal on the subject of the
3: SS. In connection with the administration of the concentration camps, the SS embarked on a series of experiments on humans, which were performed on prisoners of war or concentration camp inmates. These experiments included freezing to death and killing by poison bullets.
2: Hess, in spite of having a blanket round his knees, appeared to develop cramp or something. Ribbentrop's attentions proved ineffective and Hess was allowed to leave the court for a time. The first individual verdict dealt with Goering. Lord Justice Lawrence speaking.
3: Göring claims its purposes have been misunderstood, but admits that as a matter of course and a matter of duty, we would have used Russia for our purposes, Conquer.
2: The verdict on Hess was delivered in Russian, but it might have been any language for all the attention Hess paid to it. Mr. Justice Biddle dealt with Ribbentrop's case.
3: The tribunal finds that Ribbentrop is guilty on all four counts. Stryker, his persecution of the Jews was notorious. The tribunal finds that Stryker is not guilty on count one, that he is guilty on count 4. The tribunal finds that shot is not guilty on this indictment and directs that he shall be discharged by the marshal when the tribunal presently adjourns. The tribunal finds that the is not guilty under this indictment and directs that
4: he shall be discharged by the Marshal
5: when the tribunal presently adjourns.
2: As we know, in addition to Schacht and von Parthen, Hans Fritscher was also acquitted. All three, not unnaturally, received congratulations from the others. The scene that followed later, when the three men were permitted a mild celebration and interviewed by the press, has received much publicity. But it's really beside the point. The point being that the tribunal acquitted them on the charges brought against them. It certainly stresses the fairness of the trial. On the last day, the day of sentences, filming wasn't permitted. Outside the courthouse, after the sentences, newspapers were quickly sold out. As I say, the final scenes inside the court couldn't be photographed, but there is this record of some of the last words spoken during the historic trial of Nuremberg.
3: Defendant Hermann Wilhelm Göring, the International Milit Bill sentences you to death by hanging. Defendant Rudolf Hess of the tribunal sentences you to imprisonment. That's good,
1: Tanner. Thank you very much. Thank you. So that was the famous trials at Nuremberg. And boy, was this thing a big deal. There was movies made about it. It's, uh, it's in our cultural memory as a, as a great event. And my personal feeling about it is, I will make a personal opinion, it was a scam. Why do I say it was a scam? Well, I don't know, 50 Nazis got hung. They all sat in the courtroom and said they were following orders. Uh, They were really, you know, they knew they they were going to get hung, these people. And did you notice in the movie reel, they made such a big effort to say that the trial was fair. They even released three criminals, Helmar Schacht, Hans Fritsch, and Franz von Papen. And these guys were no choir boys, okay? Shocked, you know, he was, uh, he was the central banker. Fritsch, he was the head propagandist. He was the, uh, the, uh, the main media personality that was uh, telling the German people what was going on. And then von Papen, he was the one that ushered in Hitler in 1933. These people were, you know, they were in on it, okay, v- very heavily. In fact, this Fritsch, if it's true, which, you know, it's hard to tell, but when I was researching him, he was awarded the Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross. I mean, this is a really high honor, can only be awarded by Adolf Hitler himself, and only Adolf Hitler can pin it on your chest. So this guy was at the, the pinnacle. I mean, this is, this is, and we're talking about Nazism as a secret society. It's a secret society because its views were not really ready for prime time. And it was a political philosophy that was operationalizing humanism and Darwinism and eugenics. And instead of, you know, giving these people a place to speak and tell us, the world's people, about this secret society and why they acted the way they did, you know, they knew they were going to get killed so, of course, they lied. They said they were following orders, and everything they did was A-OK. So we really never got a, uh, how shall I say, we never really got a, a true accounting of what these people thought and w- what was really going on. And we hung them, OK, and it was a big show. And why I said it was a scam, let us remember Operation Paperclip. While well, they were hanging these 50 people, or whatever the number was, I didn't look it up. It wasn't very many. Thousands and thousands of Nazis, hardcore religious humanists, Darwinists, eugenicists, were imported into our country by our secret service, the OSS, later to be known as the CIA, in what's called Operation Paperclip, and these people took up the most important. Seats of power in our universities, in our military establishment, in our research establishment. What did people think? Hey, that these guys were cool? No, these people were scientists, and that's the core of the humanist philosophy. And they brought with them all of their eugenicist and anti-human ideas, and we let them have teaching positions where they could influence generations of scholars. And they did. And we paid for it. We, the people, paid for it. So I'm going to have to say, assuming the close, that we're going to get a big victory through our constitutional process because I have faith in this, and I want you to have faith in it. I'm prepared to do whatever it takes to defend human well-being. And let us say that we're sitting here together in a few years And these criminals that are doing these things are ready to be brought to justice. I do not think that putting people on trial in this kind of circumstance is the right idea because we're incentivizing them to say, they'll never take me alive. We've all heard that on, you know, in the movies, they'll never take me alive, which means we're incentivizing people that are in control of our bioweapons facilities, that are in in charge of our nuclear weapons, they're in charge of so many dangerous and deadly artifacts of science, we're telling them, hey, we're going to hang you. And then what do they have to lose but kill everybody? So I got a better idea. There's another model, and I think it's a model that will bring out into the light the truth. And that is the truth commissions that were held in South Africa Uh, at the end of the apartheid movement when our our apartheid was overthrown by the people of South Africa. Uh, Tanner can you play this, this piece on the Truth Commission? It's a short piece please.
3: When we arrived at Kulimba, do you remember you hung me up?
1: I may have done it, sir.
5: To listen to the victims of human rights abuses, to provide reparation and to grant amnesty. These were the three main tasks of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The scope of the commission dated from the 1960s right through to 1994, including the Shell House massacre, the murder of Communist Party leader Chris Harney, and the St. James Church attack in Cape Town. While many wanted answers around high-profile killings and disappearances, it was the everyday brutality of the apartheid system that came to characterize much of the hearings. For some, it was all too much. The perpetrators also had to be heard. In planning the commission, some had argued for a punitive system like the Nuremberg trials, which prosecuted Nazi war criminals. But in the end, the TRC chose a more conciliatory approach. Applicants had to prove their acts were politically motivated and make a full disclosure to receive clemency. Shocking scenes of torture were reenacted for the Commission. ANC bomber Robert McBride and former police hit squad commander Dirk Kutsir were both granted amnesty. Chris Harney's killers, Janus Walus and Clive Darby Lewis, were not. But many chose not to apply for amnesty, among them high ranking former government officials. Apartheid-era chemical warfare expert Dr. Voter-Basson was one of them. He later went to trial, but the state found insufficient evidence to convict him. The commission formally ended in 2001. Of the more than 7,000 amnesty applications, less than 1,000 were granted. And the matter of reparations continues to be a bone of contention for many victims. While not perfect, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has been used as a model by other countries seeking reconciliation.
6: You deserve to know more. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Tanner. So this uh, brings us back to the South, Af- South Africa case, the case of South Africa. How does a society deal with uh, a Nazi... Um, system of apartheid. And it was not. We're going to show it in a minute. It were, they were, these people were pure Nazis. And when I say pure, I mean they were not hiding. They were right out in the open as Nazis, which goes into the whole history of South Africa, which you know brings up a lot of interesting you know, ideas that we can talk about today for a minute or two or 15, whatever the case may be. I'm going to give it my best shot because this is stuff that's getting forgotten. What was South Africa? Well, South Africa was originally settled by europeans in 1652 it was dutch german and french huguenot settlers now the core of this was the french huguenots and people go well what what's a huguenot well these were 16th and 17th century uh protestants who had suffered persecution at the hands of the catholic majority in their home country and they went to practice their protestantism which was a Calvinist Protestantism. Calvin. I mean, Calvin. Okay, what was Calvin? Okay, Calvin was a real big thinker at the time in this Protestant movement, and he believed in election. Listen to this, divine election. That God doesn't want all men to be saved, but rather only wishes a variety of men to be saved, that he chooses. This sounds a little bit like we're heading down the eugenics path, As a matter of fact, that's right where it took us because what Calvin believed was that some people were saved divinely, appointed and elected to be saved, and other people just weren't, they had no chance. They were subhuman. So we had this kind of Darwinist, this is the thinking that Darwin later codified into the origin of the species, and then Spencer turned into social Darwinism, and Sir Francis Galton weaponized into a political action plan. But these people, these Huguenots, went into, you know, the South African region with the belief, with the belief that they were superior. And they went right about taking slaves and creating a slave culture. And, uh, you know, after the Napoleonic Wars, Britain found itself with uh, an unemployment problem, a serious unemployment problem. So what did the crown do? It picked up uh, thousands of its most unsavory People And they sent them to South Africa also because it was strategically important, you know, the tip of Africa. And uh, they suspected maybe there were some natural resources there that could be stolen for the crown. So the, the British went in there as a colonial enterprise. And we had this conflict now between the original, you know, Dutch and German and French Huguenot settlers and now this British group. And they came in and they they started to have wars, wars. And the Huguenots really resented the British because the British had gone anti-slavery. Let's stop here for a second. The greatest slave-taking empire in history, the Crown, had decided on uh, August first, 1834, to abolish slavery. Boy, that sounds great. They did it. And why did they do it? Well, of course, when you... Have a slave-taking culture and you transition to non-slave-taking, boy, that's a big change, right? So it didn't just happen for one reason. This is a multifactorial uh set of circumstances and reasons uh as to why the, you know, the 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 crown gave up slavery as their core of their business model. Well, I'm gonna say right now they didn't give it up. My theory of this is that they had a better idea. But let's not forget that when you have the greatest slave-taking enterprise in world history going on and there's Christians about, there were many men and women who, with great righteousness and a great sense of religious identification and love of God, they, they fought. There was some righteous indignation against this slave culture, this slave empire, within the crown itself, and that's not to be minimized. There were people that gave everything that they had to fight this slavery business model, which is what we're doing here today. We're doing the same thing. But that wasn't really, I don't think, what pushed it over the the goal line. Uh, There's reasons why uh, slavery uh, ended The crown ended slavery for business reasons. Uh, Number one, because these um, Christians, and they were Christians, were pushing the crown to upgrade and to make the lives of the slaves better. You know, you got to start somewhere, right? Uh, There was a policy in 1823. It was called the amelioration policy. And it was, um, uh, you know, to improve the conditions of the slaves. And it failed. So when that policy failed, uh, you know, by 1834, it was clear that the slave owners, you know, they were a long way away. They were in other countries, and they had no interest in listening to that because, of course, it was going to cost them money. And the lack of, uh, of good conditions was causing huge slave revolts. Let's remember, slaves are human beings. they're thinking and reasoning people, they knew they were enslaved, and they were starting to organize and rebel which takes a lot of resources. In fact, it takes a lot of resources to house and feed and care for slaves just generally. It's a cost of doing business. So you got the basic cost of taking care of the slaves, and then when they rebel, the cost goes even higher. So I'm going to say, just an opinion, not in anybody's head, I think that the Crown was looking at slavery as a pretty inefficient way uh, of getting its job done. They're thinking, boy, is there something more efficient that we could do. The image of the colonials that were the slave owners was in decline. And you know, things don't just go in decline. It has to be in decline relative to something else. We had a new industrial class that was rising. The products of science, industrialization. So the, the industrializing uh, uh, economy of of England was bringing forth a new class of of entrepreneurs and capitalists who, you know, they seemed a little bit less unseemly, which made the slave owners look kind of tacky, which was good for PR. You know, you got all these super rich people that are decadent and, you know, doing all kinds of kind of questionable things because, you know, they went crazy there with all those slaves. We know that we don't have to talk about it. We just think about it a little bit. There was overproduction. You know, slavery led to overproduction of, you know, sugar and the other products of the the plantation system. There was a new one, free labor ideology. Oh, this is great. It was believed that if you set the slaves free, the cost of operation would go down. That's something we can all talk about and think about. In other words, if you force the slaves to take care of themselves and turn them into wage slaves, They'll work a lot harder. Now are we getting this? We had a industrial revolution and that allowed machinery to replace the slaves. We needed workers for those machines. We could have used slaves, but they had to keep up with the machines. So let's set them free and then they're going to have to work really hard because now they're wage slaves. This is going from slavery 1.0, colonial slavery 1.0, to the crown going to slavery 2.0, which is wage slavery in the process of industrialization, it doesn't sound so great that they freed the slaves now, does it? it sounds a little sketchy. He had a new Whig government in England. Uh, the Whig government was, a, you know, a, a, a liberal government. The Whigs were liberals. They wanted to transfer power from the crown to the people. The crown, the crown was pretty darn smart. When you don't have to do anything but figure out how to keep your money and your power, and you have lots of experts, I think they were already trying to figure out how to use this this liberal movement of empowering the people to manipulate politics in their favor. Remember, the best way to control the opposition is to lead it. Vladimir Lenin, but he probably, no, he didn't probably, he learned it from people that came before him. And the final reason they freed these slaves is they they compensated the slave owners, big-time money. They paid them off. They gave them a one-time payoff, and they said, guess what? Hey, we're going to give you a big payoff, and then you can lend all these slaves money for their own little, you know, sharecropping land or however you want to set it up, and then they'll work really hard because you don't have to feed them anymore. If they don't work real hard, they'll starve to death. Oh, it's a great idea. In other words, they didn't get by their Darwinism. They took it up a notch, cleaned it up because there was, of course, a growing resistance to slavery, and they cleaned it up and made it wage slavery, and that's the world we live in today. Interesting, isn't it? Let's take a look at what was really in South Africa. Can you play this piece about Ter Blanche? Hack to death. The Nazis of South Africa.
6: Eugene Terblanche lived a controversial life and died a violent death. The self-proclaimed white supremacist was bludgeoned to death while he slept in 69 flags. years old. Two workers on his farm are prime suspects and in custody.
5: I
4: can just at this stage say that the case of murder has been opened by Fintersdorf police and uh, that there has been two people arrested for the murder.
6: Police say the motive was apparently a dispute over unpaid wages and do not believe it was his politics
1: was that Nazi flag came
6: to prominence in the early 80s he was the founder and leader of the AWB political party a white nationalist movement he championed an apartheid system of government in South Africa one where blacks would only be allowed as guest workers Ter Blanche was known for his fiery rhetoric in which he spoke of race wars and railed against the end of apartheid when apartheid did end he and his supporters sought amnesty and were granted it by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I was never wrong to honour my heritage. But Terre Blanche remained committed to the concept of an all-white South Africa until he died. The AWB party released a statement mourning his loss. In it, they praised Terre Blanche for dedicating his life to realising a dream of freedom for our Bo people and working toward a free state where we could rule over ourselves. The statement also called on members to be calm for now. Azhar Sukri, Al Jazeera. That's
1: good. So this AWB party, the Afrikaner resistance movement was a militant, neo-Nazi, I don't know why they call it neo-Nazi, these people were Nazis. It was an Afrikaner white supremacist movement and uh, it was active, it was violent, it used a flag that resembled the swastika. You, you know, I think we have a hard time just labeling these people as Nazis, like neo-Nazis. Now they're Nazis. They're Nazis. They were white supremacists. They believed they were superior. They were uh, Protestants, and they were influ- influenced by Calvinism. They believed that they were saved, and other people weren't. And the other people, well, they weren't saved. Let's slave them out. And that's who they were. And uh, you know, when the when the when the people of South Africa overthrew these these folks, they instead of killing them all, they let them come forward, and they had a truth commission, and they allowed them to tell their stories, and the victims told their stories. They did it in an effort of reconciliation, but they also got the truth out about who these people really were. You know, when you hang somebody, their last words is, F you. But when you give them a chance to live, when you bribe them with their own lives, and you say, hey... If you'll tell us about your secret societies and what you believe, and if you tell us and you admit your crimes, hey, you're free. Well, now you're incentivizing people not to blow the world up. You're incentivizing people to tell us, the American people, about these very dark plans. And we really need to think about, as we take back uh, 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 a path in this country of human well-being, of, you know, because this, this... Darwinism, this humanism is so pervasive in our society. We really need to let people understand it for the first time. It goes back to the 1880s. It's been hidden. We see the political movements, but we really don't see the underlying ideology or what the goals and the plans are. Those are still hidden from us, the American people, because I believe if we were allowed to see those plans, 75% of the people would vote against it because who wants to vote for their own death? You know Who's going to everybody on the right side that believe in human dignity and human well-being and the 25% of you that want to see everybody die, come over here. So we can, you know, pick you out, and they'll tell us why you think that way. So this apartheid movement was Nazi, and um, let let, let me just say that there was a humongous battle that lasted 100 years uh, in South Africa to... Free the people and create well-being for the people, and you know I'm getting a little negative as I'm as I see this stuff because I'm studied and I see this big battle between the forces of freedom and the forces of Nazism, and they're just hammering, tonging it. But what was really going on? Tanner, can you play this piece on gold in South Africa, the gold piece, and cut it at one forty? <laughs>
4: After half a century, the Union of South Africa has withdrawn from the British family of nations. Racial discrimination remains her policy and she will not apply for continued membership of the Commonwealth. From the burden of apartheid, the coloured people out there will not be released. At London's Lancaster House, it was clear that the opposition to Dr. Fairfoot and his government was too strong for Mr. Macmillan or anyone else to mollify. The Afro-Asian-Canadian bloc would accept no compromise. But though leaving the Commonwealth, Dr. Fairfoot points out that South Africa will remain in the Stirling area and will continue her friendship with Britain. The gold mining industry is the main prop of South Africa's prosperity. Annual production, more than 200 million pounds. To the great mines of the ramp. An army of colored workers is vital today, as it has been for many years, since the gold was discovered in the country 97 years ago. South Africa is the greatest gold producer in the world. Her position as such is unlikely to be affected. Nor is her importance in the diamond industry. though stock exchange jitters have cut share prices by millions in the last few days. The fabulously rich earth will go on yielding its treasures.
1: That's good, ten. Look at all that talk. Contra- so while these people are hammering, tonging it, and there's uh, this huge, violent conflict between the people, okay, and everybody's focused on human freedom. You heard that? They threw the South Africans out of the Commonwealth, but they remained friends. Why? Because the folks that owned these mines were British. The British extract, during this period, the British extracted all the gold and diamonds out of this country. They robbed it, you know, while the people were fighting to, you know, get a, you know, some daily bread. They, they were manipulated into a war, and the place got robbed robbed and where's all that gold i mean where is all that gold i mean that number that they said i I can't believe it was too big of a number i didn't understand it but they did take hundreds of thousands of tons of gold out of this country they they stripped it who's got that wealth now let's think about who's got that well they were british these people were the British. This mine, the biggest mine, <laughs> a German born industrial financier, Sir Ernest Oppenheimer. Unbelievable. These people have names. You can go look him up, read about him. So when there's a war, you know, I have these thoughts about war and politics. You know, wars and politics are close together. I think von Clausewitz was a German military philosopher. He said war is politics by other means. So when you see that things break out into violence, polit- this is just politics. War is politics. And politics is war. You know, the inverse is also true. So when we have these um, conflicts, like in South Africa, where they rob that country behind that racial conflict i mean it's just a scam if the people would have actually sat down i mean even those racist huguenots those not if they would have realized that while they were defending their way of life the you know the british were maybe they were in on it they might have got a cut i don't know but boy a lot of wealth got taken away from the indigenous people of that region and now we have this war in ukraine What's being hidden from us there with this war? Well, we've, we've talked about it. It's the, the idea of the world island and the heartland, which is the Ukraine. You know, who uh, Mackinder believed that who controls the heartland controls the world island. And, you know, the, the crown, the colonialists, now the Western globalist empire, is in conflict with the Russian-Chinese-Iranian alliance for control of the heartland. And these people are thrown down. They're escalating. They're escal- when I say they're escalating, that would be we the people are escalating. So um, I said on a recent podcast that the uh, air defenses of the Ukrainians have been destroyed, which makes them completely vulnerable, and that the kill ratio was about 7 to 10 to 1, which means Ukraine's going to fall, unless reinforcements come. And the reinforcements arrived that very next week. I don't know how it can be so timely. Our government, that would be us, we the people, have put our Patriot missile batteries in there, which now is going to impede Russia's use of the air war. And we heard that there's 20,000 Poles fighting in Ukraine. 20,000 Poles? That's a lot of people. So we've got these other associated countries. Of course, this isn't the Polish army. These are mercenaries. Mercenaries. I read over the weekend that Robert Kennedy Jr.'s son, his 24-year-old son, our recent candidate, announced candidate for the Democrat uh, nomination for president in 2024, his son went to fight, allegedly, in the Ukraine. Rockstar. So people are going from all over the world to defend Ukrainian freedom. Okay. Uh, Now, the Russians see that this escalation is happening that reinforcements are coming. So they've done something that they haven't done in many, many months. They unleashed uh, airstrikes that killed people throughout the country. It's the first time. These are the worst attacks on civilian targets in five months. They they knew they had the Ukrainians beat. And, you know, the Ukraine has a long, close association with Russia. So they don't want to devastate this country. They backed off because they knew the Ukrainians had lost but the reinforcements came, the air defenses have been restored. So now, here we go, escalation. Uh, Play this Ukrainian response to the Russian airstrikes, please, uh, on the drone strike, Tanner. (laughs) This is a drone flying through the air. Ukrainian drone. Nothing happens with drones unless uh, uh, we the people are in on on the decision. Oh, there it goes. Blows up a huge refinery. You know, the drone, the intelligence, the operation, the whole thing is involving we the people. This is a huge refinery. It burnt like a, you know, just burnt to a crisp. Huge. It was a thousand square meter fire. Uh, You know, uh, this is an attack now. Tanner, that's good. This is an attack in the Crimea. Now, Crimea was, has a very interesting history uh, for reasons that we can delve into in the future. Uh, It was associated with the Ukraine by Stalin. So the Ukrainians feel that they... You know, Crimea is part of their territory, at least those Ukrainians that are in for this kind of a thing. That'd be the Nazi Ukrainians. Because if you look real closely, and I urge you to do it, the flag in South Africa that we saw, they got the same flag in the Ukraine. Interesting, isn't it? Nazism. We don't like to talk about it in the mainstream media, it upsets people. But Nazism is a political strategy. And its bedrock is the new religion of humanism. So we don't like to talk. It makes us uncomfortable. When you call people a Nazi, people get nervous. So let me just say it's my opinion. But you can go look right on YouTube and see the same flag that was in South Africa. It's all over the Ukraine. So Crimea has been a Russian territory for a very, very, very long time. Uh, I think 20, 2014, perhaps. Um uh, the Russians occupied the Crimea, the Crimea, the Crimeans voted and they wanted to be part of Russia because it's kind of like the Miami beach of the Russian Federation. Everybody there is Russian. There's a Russian military or a naval base there. So, you know, that's where the military establishment of Russia goes to retire. It's beautiful. It's on the black sea. And, uh, so that was an attack that we, the people, we did the intelligence. When I say we, Nothing like that happens without U.S. intelligence and a U.S. OK. So we the people have just launched an attack through a proxy, the Ukraine, that landed on, in Russian territory and blew up a key strategic asset. Let that marinate around in your brain for a while. That that's an attack on Can you imagine if an Iranian drone blew up an oil refinery in Houston? What would happen next? Look at the restraint that Putin is using. You know, we keep saying that he's a dictator and a horrible person. That was an attack on a next Russian territory, territory that has hundreds of years' tradition as being Russian. Okay? So that's an attack on Russia by a Ukrainian drone. Certainly, we have our fingerprints all over it. Flip the tables around. A refinery in Houston is blown up by an Iranian drone. What do you think is going to happen next? What happened after the Twin Towers came down? They weren't drones, but they were airplanes, right? Well, we went off on a 20-year adventure. Three million Iraqis died. So, you know, when you start blowing up stuff in people's homelands, that's very provocative. And, again, let's look at how restrained the Russian Federation is being, and it's a response because they don't want a general war. It's we, the people, that are escalating this war. So I want to say to my, uh, to my aunt. I have an aunt. I'm not going to mention her name, but she, I love her. She's my aunt. And she used to babysit for me when I was a baby. And she watches a lot of uh, CNN and, you know, Fox News. She watches the mainstream media. That's where she gets her news sources. So for my aunt, because her... Source of information is very narrow. She doesn't know very much about the Maidan revolution or the involvement of the U.S. government, the Obama administration, in overthrowing an elected Russian centric government. Uh, You know, we need to go back and look at these things, all of us as American people. These things are not hidden. The root of this war is not hidden. The intentionality of NATO. Is not hidden. The manipulation of NATO by its key members, which is the former colonial powers and the United States of America, to confront the Russian Federation, this is not hidden. So let's look at our four corners of the intersection. You could be on a corner and look at the Russians as being horrible and an expansionist dictatorship. No doubt there's truth in that. But you could go to another corner and see that the West has incurred into Russian territory militarily, has gone on Russia's borders with the Finns, with the, the Ukrainians. I mean, that NATO has pushed right up on Russia's border and is threatening Russia because they want control of that, that, that island that is the, the, the linchpin of control of the Eurasian Peninsula. peninsula. So this is a very strategic effort on the part of the Western globalist leaders to control the future of Europe by controlling the future of Eurasia. And they've gone to war over it. They tried to do it politically. Obviously, I mean, I think they tried to do it politically. They didn't achieve their ends politically. The Russians didn't achieve their ends politically because, of you know, obviously war is, you know, not the first step most of the time. And now we're at war. So I urge my aunt and all the other people that are watching to do your research. You can go right on YouTube and learn about the history of Ukraine. Learn about the history of Crimea. Open your mind to all four corners of the intersection where we have this horrifying accident, a war. And let us let us understand that uh, there's a lot of ways to look at this. And if we're going to have a solution to it that doesn't involve the nuclear holocaust, we're going to have to become, as the American people, aware of how we got to where we are. We've got to know how we got here. And uh, this war is escalating. So when I see escalation, I have to say again, please get involved. Please, because our leadership is intent on pursuing this war and defeating the Russians by any means necessary. That is an opinion of mine, but they don't seem to be negotiating. They're attacking the Russian homeland. This is not the first time. Uh, They keep rearming the Ukrainians. Now they're bringing in other countries, mercenaries from other countries, even from the United States of America. There's probably thousands of Americans fighting in the Ukraine for money, mercenaries. So please get involved. Uh, I'm involved in politics because I want to live. I want my children to live. I believe in human well-being, and I do not see a nuclear war as contributing to human well-being, and I hope you agree with me. So I'm involved in politics. Um, I went to uh, Minnesota's CD3 convention, CD3. That's Congressional District 3. You know, all of our states are divided into congressional districts, and from those congressional districts, we elect our Congress. And uh, there's eight congresspeople from uh, Minnesota, and CD3 is in the west metro area and goes out into the, you know, associated non, into the, you know, agriculture areas. But it's really a a metro area, is where most of the population is. And uh, the uh, elected representative is uh, a Democrat, Dean Phillips, who's at the top of the uh, you know, uh, Democrat Party power structure. He's a very good politician. He's, he's a, a, you know, very, very warm and friendly person. He's just a, he's just a good orator. Uh, but he is a firm supporter of the leftist globalist uh, agenda of the Democrat Party. He, he acts like he's a moderate, but he votes every time with the most globalist policies. And, you know, it's the job of activists in CD3 to supplant this guy and get rid of them, and get a a different representative elected. So we had our annual CD3 convention, and uh, I went, um, and uh, it was very interesting, and I do want to comment on this at some great length and with some great care. It was not well attended. Um, Probably a, a quarter of the people that actually had Previously committed to be involved in this organization actually showed up. So there was uh, maybe a uh, hundred and ten people out of five hundred that took their time to live up to their obligation. So either they've given up or they forgot. I don't know which, but you know there's a lot of efforts to contact these people. So they've decided it was not worth their time to self-govern. How are we going to save this country? if the people that actually committed to self-govern, say I got something better to do, they don't self-govern. There's nothing more important to do than self-governance, particularly when our elected representatives have forgotten we the people and they're doing things that have nothing to do with my well-being. They're doing things that are actually against, that detract from my human well-being. So we the people have got to to get up and get off the couch and attend these conventions and get involved in the game of politics. I'm not blaming anybody. The reason why people don't attend is because there's no benefit to attend for most of the people. For four-fifths of the delegate body, they don't see a reason. There's no reason to go. I'm not going to get anything out of it. They don't go. Well, that's what this podcast is about, forming a community with you and changing that, changing the perception, changing the reality that we in the party are there to increase and enhance human well-being. Okay, right there, that's a first step. Let's get focused on what we're doing. So I went, and I was sitting in a row of people that were with me because I don't want to say that I'm a, I don't want to self-identify as a leader, and I'm not interested in being a leader, but I'm very active and I have people that are at least with me. I don't want to say they're following me, but we're together. And we sat in a row. There wasn't that many of us, but it's a significant group of very active people. And one of the most prominent members of the national organization, who was also involved in Minnesota, walked up and smiled and he said, looks like a mutiny. And I thought to myself, okay, how do I respond to this? Because I'm being accused of being a mutineer, which is the same thing as saying you're a domestic terrorist. Those words have meaning." to call someone a mutineer they hang mutineers okay so this is not a joke it was said as a joke to mask the very dark sentiment that was expressed that we were mutineers we are not mutineers let me just i hope you're watching this please watch in fact i'm going to send it to you we're not mutineers we're american citizens that love this country that and we are completely uh, dedicated, and, and followers of the Constitution of the, America, uh, uh, Constitution of the United States of America. We are using the political process to bring forward ideas that the Uni Party, or in this case, the Republican Party, doesn't like, like human well-being. They don't like talk like that. So I'm seen as a mutineer, and I want to go on record. I am not a mutineer. I am completely committed to rule of law, insofar as it functions, I'm com- completely committed to my constitution, and just because I don't agree with you doesn't make me a mutineer. In fact, I could say back to you, "You don't agree with me, you're a mutineer. Now we're labeling each other. Once we start labeling each other, politics breaks down. We start fighting with each other, like those South Africans, and while we're fighting with each other, all the wealth gets robbed. So I'm going to say to you, my friend, you got, you're sitting on a stack of cash while we're fighting. You're going to wake up one day, and you're not going to have a penny in the bank because they're going to take it all away from you. So please, let's wake up together and check out the real situation, and let's throw off these labels of the past and work together for human well-being here in CD3 and protect the future lives and well-being of our children because obviously we're a little bit long in the tooth now. You're longer in the tooth than I am, considerably longer. So I'm going to ask that everybody that's a little bit longer in the tooth, hey, we don't have much to lose. Let's get focused on we the people. Let's give up past allegiances to ideologies that have failed. And why do I know they are failed? Because we're $32 trillion in debt and we're on the verge of nuclear war. That's all I need to know that it's a failure and it's time for a new kind of politics. So, no, we're not mutineers. We were there to participate in the political process. And the other, another very prominent person in the, in the national organization stood up and gave a very nice prayer to start the event. And I sat there as a person that understands prayer, and I thought, wow, this is great. Let's listen to the prayer. And what was the prayer? The prayer was a manipulation of the people, which is a violation of one of the most important commandments. We don't pray to manipulate people. We pray We pray for peace. We pray for well-being. We give prayers of thanks. But we don't ask God to manipulate people. That is a violation of one of the big ten. Just want to share that with you. And I'm going to send this to you also. Because if we're going to stand up in front of the people and pray, and use God's energy in God's name, let us do it in a way that doesn't violate God's rules because the constitution of the faith is those Ten Commandments. So let us try to learn them because there's penalties for violating them. And then there was a bunch of protesters there. Oh, that was so interesting. There were protesters. They were wearing green shirts. And they were protesting against other certain prominent members of the state party and bringing forth all kinds of violations. Now, this was their opinion. I don't have any facts. I just have their opinion. I read what they had to say. I don't know if it's true or false. But they were protesting, and they were passionate. And they were focused on change. And I was impressed. And I didn't feel alone because sometimes when I'm hanging around here, because, you know, when you're a mutineer, sometimes when you're hanging from the gallows, it's a little bit lonely. So I was uplifted. And we had a big fight there. Oh, my goodness gracious. They were having a, a rules change. A rules change. That's what you do at conventions. You go over the rules. And experts, technocrats, attorneys on a committee show up with a bunch of changes. And then they present it to the delegate body and they vote up or down on this thing. And wouldn't you know it, these same green shirted people. These mutineers, and they're not mutineers, they're American citizens using the constitutional process for the well being of the people. They noticed the rules change, and it read like this Members of the executive committee may be removed for any of the following reasons conduct tending to disrupt or obstruct the objectives or proceedings of the executive committee, including. And here comes a bunch of legal language, because what they were now going to obscure their real goal here, including but not limited to harassment, being physical with others or threatening others, failure to cooperate in carrying out the assigned duties of the office, actively or publicly supporting any candidate opposing an endorsed Republican in a primary or a general election, or unexcused abs- absence for two consecutive meetings. You know, they're looking for a reason to maintain their control and to remove members for being disruptive. Oh, boy. These green-shirted people stood up, and they led the charge. And there was a very eloquent young uh, member of the party who asked questions in in a respectful way, but with a kind of derisive tone, was perfect. Perfect! And there was debate, and there was conflict, and then they had a vote on this, and, when, and I sat in the back of the room, and it sounded like it was 50-50, because the people that wanted this to pass screamed at the top of their lungs in support of this amendment to our rules. Conduct tending to disrupt or, disrupt or obstruct objectives. That'd be me, because remember, I'm a mutineer. You see how this is all working together? And they had him they had stand up, because you couldn't tell. And when there was a standing vote, it was overwhelmingly rejected by we the people. We the people want freedom of speech. We the people want dialogue and discourse and argument. We want change. It was a repudiation of the uni Uniparty at, down at this little lowest level. It's, the, it's the, fund, the fundamental building block level. So let me tell you, all you listeners and viewers, get involved. Because at your Fundamental Backyard Neighborhood Convention, that's the whole game right there. We the people stood up and we defeated tyranny. Tyranny. That's tyranny. That's correct. You heard me. It's And now you can't throw me out of the party. Because, yes, I'm disrupting, but you can't throw me out just for being disruptive. I'm labeling that, in my opinion, this is a tyrannical amendment. And it goes right into our national policy released by President Biden on domestic terrorism. A domestic terrorist is now identified as a white supremacist, questions vaccines, questions elections. If you got those three attributes, you're labeled as a terrorist by our security services. So now you're a disruptor down at the, at the you know, in CD3, they want to clip you out just because you don't agree. You're a disruptor. Didn't work. You failed. Don't try it again. You come back, you're going to get beat again. And the next time you try it, it's going to be even a bigger margin. That's why I'm doing this podcast to create a community of American citizens that want to bring about change in C D three and in Minnesota. So please send this out. This can be a focal point of our communication, of our gathering, of our of our ascendance in a new political uh, ideology. Okay, I was really uplifted by this. Actually, when I went home, I felt like I took a bath in dirt, which I often feel like when I spend time with people that call me names or try to put through ideas that are just tyrannical, I feel terrible. But actually, I was uplifted. I was sitting there with Royce White who's a very prominent voice. Uh, Maybe they thought I was a mutineer because I was sitting with him. Well, you know, that's another American citizen that's interested in constitutionally mandated change, the process of getting us involved. So here we come, folks. We're coming, and there's nothing you can do but stop us. And when we get there, I'm for truth commissions. I'm not for hanging people. I want people to come before the truth commission and explain to us why we're $32 trillion in debt and on the verge of nuclear war. I want a truth commission. So, you know, you might join with us. You might, you know, check out the real situation, watch the podcast, let's look at history, because we're going to be doing politics from now on. The chicken wing parties have come to an end. And that brings me to my, my next subject for today, the change in Minnesota politics. Well, okay. I'm a mutineer. I'm going to wear it for a minute. I'm not agreeing that I'm a mutineer. I'm saying I was labeled. You know, why does a person mutiny? He mutinies because the captain of the ship is going to get us all killed. That's why you mutiny. A mutiny is a last resort to save your life. Nobody wants to be a mutineer because it's being a traitor. A mutineer that fails to succeed. In taking control, is hung as a traitor. So it's like, you know, it's kind of like a last resort strategy. And when do you do it? You realize that you have to do it because the people in control are going to kill you and kill your children. And I've come to that conclusion. So, you know, please call me crazy also. But I've been saying, please go read the source materials. It doesn't take very long for you to read Julian Huxley or, uh, you know, uh, uh, Sir Bertrand Russell, or listen to you, Yuval Noah Harari, or Klaus Schwab, or go read the, the, the formative documents of these biotechnology companies and these AI companies to know that they are going to evolve the human species. They view the problem of human suffering as being a problem with humans that there's nothing divine about this. They view the whole God thing as a scam. And they want to use, you know, science to evolve humanity to a new species such that the difference between the ruler and the ruled is so great that there can be no dissent. Sir Bertrand Russell, we've read it and talked about it many times now. That would be, you know, the disruptors have no power. You know, when I think about this, it, it makes me almost silent how well-hidden this humanist religion is, as secular humanism. It's a religion. That's what we've been setting the predicate for. These people are involved in a, in a religion, and they don't understand, I think most of them are just unaware, that uh, this religion intends to evolve humanity through science such that we have a new species. This is called positive eugenics, and you know it's being fenced. You know the Neuralink. You know, and it's always positive. You know, it's going to help. You know, uh, people that are you know paralyzed to walk again, or the blind to see again. Oh, there's so many benefits, and there are scientific benefits, and we want the benefits of science. But what I am going to fight against to my last breath is the elimination of God from public life and from private life, and the evolution of the human species of Homo sapiens to a new level, such that Homo sapiens become irrelevant. Because what do you do with something that's irrelevant? As Harari said, the biggest problem facing us politically today are the 2 to 3 billion unnecessary and irrelevant people. My goodness, what are you going to do with that? Well, I know what the Nazis did. They killed them. And instead of having a truth commission to know why they killed them, we hung them, and their ideology died with them, and that allowed that very pernicious Darwinist humanist religion to spread out all over the world, into South Africa, into the United States with Operation Paperclip. It's everywhere, in every university. So in Minnesota... We just need a change of politics. We don't need it in one party. We need it in both parties. I'm seeking a, a set of ideas, a, a platform that is so attractive to we the people that we get a 70 to 30 vote in the next election. Of course, we're not there yet because like in South Africa, they got the people hating each other. Hey, we hate each other within our own party. A national leader called me a mutineer. That must mean he hates me because, of course, if you're the captain of the ship, you hate the mutineers because they're going to kill you. I mean, this, you know, I know it was a joke. I know you were, but, you know, the sentiment underneath, you were using a very serious, you were using a joke to cover a very serious allegation. And, you know, my my statement about this is we need a new politics because the people that are in control, are defending a uniparty approach to a business model. And that business model, of course, is slavery and drugs and piracy. And what I tried to say earlier in the podcast, just because you freed the slaves does not mean that you did it with a good intention. Now, I said there were people that were very well-intentioned, divinely inspired to, you know, slavery. But there were other people that said, oh, that movement's out there. What are we going to do with these you know, these people, these abolitionists? They're getting powerful, and they're empowered by the one true God. That's a threat to us. We don't believe in God. Boy, that's a problem. Look at how powerful these God-fearing people are. They're going to screw up our business model. We better get out in front of this. We're going to agree with them. We, the crown, we're going to agree that we should abolish slavery. We're gonna agree that it's inhumane. We're gonna agree that the policy of amelioration failed. We're gonna agree that the slave owners are decadent and horrifying. We're gonna agree, because we got a new idea. We can lower our cost of production by setting these people free and turning them into wage slaves. Oh, isn't that just, that's just genius, right? We're fighting geniuses. Now, down here on the ground, the Uni Party, that seeks to control we, the people, by throttling us, not allowing us to speak, not allowing us to do politics, threatening to throw us out if we don't agree with them. They're just the local jackboots of tyranny. But this tyranny starts way at the top. And I say this hoping that the the gentleman who called me a mutineer will listen to me and I can convert him because I actually respect him. He has a lot of great accomplishments in his life. He works very hard for what he believes in. He's a patriot. I want to believe that he just doesn't get it yet, that he'll wake up tomorrow and start doing his own research and throw off the shackles of wage slavery. Throw it off. Throw them off. Throw off the shackles of this tyranny. Uh, You know, I don't. You know, you can be a wage slave and make three million bucks a year. I know that sounds, you know, strange if you're making thirty grand a year, but they got everybody by the proverbial you you know what's. You know, they got us. It's a rat race. The human race lives in a rat race. Doesn't have to be that way. We're 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 taught to believe it needs to be that way. So we need a new a new politics here in Minnesota, and the first thing that we got to understand because our our you know the big leadership came out and said no politics we're wasting too much time disagreeing with each other just go out knock on more doors we got a new strategy ballot out ballot in let's go work our new strategy there's more republican voters out there we just didn't find them there was hundreds of thousands of republicans that didn't vote and my statement is where's your data and if you're a republican truly republican don't you think you would have voted? Because, you know, they're coming to clip you. So I, I, you know, the whole thing is a little bit strange to me, particularly when people tell me, don't disagree. It's politics. We're going to disagree with each other. There was a prayer. Oh, there's more we agree about than disagree about. Let's put our, you know, dear God, let's put our disagreements aside. You know, this is using God to throttle the people. This is tyranny. This is the soft tyranny of agreement. Of consensus, of consensus, like those Germans. That's why we started with the clip from 1936. There was no opposition to Hitler, and they still had an election, and he was overwhelmingly reelected. I mean, I want to—I you know, have to say this again with a little more style. There was no opposition to Hitler in 1936. They still had an election, and he was overwhelmingly reelected. Okay. What's the difference between 36 and 2023 if we can't do politics on the of nuclear war? That would be called there is no difference. It's a little different, but not much, okay? My opinion. I'm sharing an opinion with you. What do we know? We know that in Minnesota, in the metro area, where the leadership is saying we need 150,000 more votes, to win statewide. we got a bunch of racist things going on, which we're going to talk about upstream here. The very voters we need to approach, nobody talks to them, and they view us as being racists and that would be because many of us are. Why do I say that? This is not an opinion. This is my personal experience. Okay, you could call it an an opinion, but when people act towards me in a racist way, when they're carrying that kind of Calvinist sentiment that, you know, there's different levels of people, and some of us are saved and some of us aren't, when you carry that into politics, you don't have to be wearing a Nazi flag for it to come out in what they call dog whistles. Anyhow, another issue not important, because it's about me, and I don't care, I am very capable of dealing with all these people any way they want to play. I'm asking them to join the well-being parade because that's the one that's going to win or we're all going to die. So you have a choice. Get involved with the new politics of well-being or die because of a lack of understanding or maybe some of you are just in on it and you're just malevolent. That's why we have truth commissions because you can stand up and say, I was stupid, I couldn't figure it out, or you can say, here's what I did and why. You don't have to worry about being hung. You just have to tell the truth, because we don't want to go through this again. We just went through this in 1933 to 1945. 88 million people died. This time, when we finish these people off and defeat them politically, could we please get this out on the table and understand how wrong this philosophy and religion is? It's just wrong if you want to live. Now, if you would like to evolve beyond being a human being and become another species, If you think you're going to be chosen for that evolutionary path and you want to see all the Homo sapiens clipped out and killed, I don't know, seven and a half billion people. If you want that, go over there with that group. I hope not, because that's really sad. So we're going to have this change. We're going to look for two things. We're going to rebrand the party. We're going to make sure people understand that being a Republican is synonymous. Being a Republican is synonymous with human well-being, human freedom, and human dignity. That it was the Republican Party that was formed in 1856 specifically and only to end slavery in the United States of America. That we are the party of human freedom. That we are the party of human well-being. And we're going to figure out how to message it. And it's going to be a message around which people will rally. And we will be proud to be Republicans. We're going to be proud in every setting, in every circumstance. In my Senate district, in the last, uh, we have local Senate districts. Okay? locals. how your state's organized. In my little area, which is about 90,000 people, the three candidates that ran on the Republican side, none of them ran as Republicans because they felt that if they identified as Republicans, nobody would like them. Oh, okay, this is a great, as a business person, let me just tell you, if you don't have a brand, okay, you can't win. You have to have a brand, and you have to have a product. That's the other thing we need to our leadership. We don't have a product that resonates with the American people. We don't have a brand that people can identify with, and you're telling us we're going to win. You go peddle that on people, please, who are going to buy that. There is a growing number of us coming into the party that know it's a complete crock. We're business people. We know we need to have a brand, and we know we need to have a product. And politics, the politics within our party, is about determining what that product is. And that's what we're going to start doing in our party here in Minnesota. That's the new politics. You tried to stop it. You tried to make it disruptive. You lost. So now make a decision. Continue to fight it and lose more or get on board and let's evolve our party such that 70% of the people in the state of Minnesota vote for it. It's possible. This 50-50 thing is a scam. It's put in place so that we can get robbed. We're so busy fighting with each other, the malevolent are stealing everything we have. Let's go 70-30, 80-20, fix these problems, have our truth commissions, and maybe we can go back to the Twins games and the Vikings games and NBA games and enjoy our lives, have a little peace, have a little bit of well-being, and live our lives in harmony with the natural way. And let us remember, and this is my final rant today. When I say the natural way, I'm putting this down because I don't need any notes for this. I'm writing this. Now I'm not the only person writing it, but I'm writing it in my own way. So I can speak about this off the cuff. And I'm gonna say to all of you I will go anywhere, anytime, any place, and discuss this with anyone. Because we need to get this word out. We need to understand that the new religion is humanism. It has already taken over our country. We are no longer a Judeo Christian society, we're a humanist society. Humanism believes that the human intellect is solely responsible for the evolution of the human species. So, it has as its creation myth Darwinism, the origin of the species. Judeo Christianity has Genesis as the origin myth of its culture. But its culture is in rapid decline. We're living in a, a humanist religion which has as its cornerstone Darwinism, which posits that there is a competition and that the most preferred genetic characteristics are selected for, and everything else dies off. And there's good evidence for that scientifically, but it's still a story, and the question is, does this apply to human affairs? Does this apply to human affairs? What is the purpose of Christianity, of Judeo-Christianity, of the concept of one God? it is the other pole there's two poles here there's a yin and a yang on the one hand we know as participants in the human experience that there is competition we live it we know it and on the other hand we know that there is a, a love one for the other that there can be interdependence and cooperation so we have to make it very Scientific, thinking of Kropotkin, we got Darwin on the one hand, competition, and we have Kropotkin, cooperation. Both of them were scientists talking about, you know, selection. And these two things are in relationship to each other. And this cooperation strategy is operationalized through the Judeo Christian values of Western civilization. A lot of people are going to argue and say it was also used as a means of genocide. And that's just like that speech at the beginning of my convention. You can pervert anything as a human being. Human beings can be very perverse. Let us not throw out the message, the ideology, because individual humans failed to live up to it. That's a common mistake that's made, and it's used to discredit the ideology. And, you know, from a, a, a competition of um, a competition perspective or a science perspective, I certainly don't want to throw out science. I want science to co- contribute to human well-being. So we have this religion, humanism. We have this religion, the Judeo-Christian or the Christian religion. These two things are in conflict, and humanism has won. It has won the day. The Judeo-Christians are in conflict. Retreat, we're fighting a back game. we're fighting a, uh, you, know, a uh, you know, we're fighting a, a resistance movement now. When you understand it, it'll be easier to live, live with it. And this humanist religion, which believes in the intellect of man and the importance of man evolving the human species to alleviate or to eliminate human suffering, because remember, in the religious tradition, Faith alleviates human suffering. So we've got a material approach and a spiritual approach. These are all things we've talked about, but I want to codify it so we all start to really understand this because it makes it much easier for me to understand what's going on in the world because these things are still somewhat disguised, a lot less disguised than they were before COVID, but disguised nonetheless. Remember, I'm the science. Don't get in the way of the science. The science trumps everything. You know, if you don't believe in the science, you know, something's wrong with you. In fact, that's one of the three identifiers of a domestic terrorist, if you don't believe in the science. Oh, that sounds rather tyrannical. Your opinion to believe in faith makes you a terrorist. Got to start thinking about this. Time's running out because this religion, humanism, hides in our government as secular humanism or not a religion at all which gives us which gives us an illusion of fair play like that nuremberg trial to let those three nazis go to let us think it was fair there's nothing fair about this these people want complete control at every level they want control of every mind and every body i said body not everybody every body our bodies are digital information. They're in the process of working on evolving the species. That will mean I'm irrelevant, and that will mean that, you know, genocide is right around the corner. Happened not that long ago in Germany. That's why we had those Nuremberg trials. And, of course, in South Africa, they even mentioned they could have gone the Nuremberg route, but they wanted reconciliation. So they took those truth commissions on, because they wanted, they wanted to incentivize people to give up this humanist Nazi ideology by expressing it, by looking into the eyes of their victims, the people that they oppressed. It was reconciliation. Because if you really have a moment where someone who could kill you, execute you for your crime, says, stand up tell the truth and ye shall live, it might fire up some humanity in you. That's the depth of it. It's pretty deep, actually. And it also requires the winner, the victor, to give up revenge. You know the Old Testament, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If we follow that, everybody's blind and toothless. We're trying to get off of that spinning wheel and get into the more Christian sentiment, Judge not, lest you be judged. Or, he who is without sin casteth the first stone. He or she who is without sin cast the first stone. Let's listen. Let us hear. Let's have ears that can hear these things and get out of this mess we're in. So we're in this humanist religion. It has four political strategies. Because the people that run that religion, the priests, they don't care how they get there. They could be communists. They could be socialists. They could be liberals. They could be Nazis. They don't care. You know, J.P. Morgan, the founder of the biggest bank, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, the bank, the big bank, he funded, J.P. funded those gold mines in South Africa so all the people were killing each other They took all the gold out. That was funded by J.P. Morgan. I bet he was a Darwinist. He wasn't really interested in having the conflict solved. He wanted the cash. He wanted the power that comes with that gold. So those humanists, those those religious adherents that believe in Darwinism, their creation myth, and science, they can be communists, no problem. They can be socialists. They can be liberals. They can be Nazis. There'll be any politics required such that their religion of humanism is implemented. Like you could be a Catholic, a Jew, a Protestant, a Methodist, a Presbyterian. Hey, whatever works, right? There's nothing new about this but we need to focus on what it means now. Because if you're a communist or a socialist, or a liberal or a Nazi, and it's all the same because it's part of the humanist religion, and its fundamental creation myth is Darwinism, oh, we've got some self-evaluation to do. This is to my friend who called me a mutineer. Because Alexander Dugan, who is a Russian political theorist, and I can't trust any everything he says because, you know, he's a Russian political theorist. But his critique of America is there's no conservatism here. And that would be because in his mind, everything is neoliberal. What he's saying is there's no faith. And when we have a party in Minnesota where some of the most prominent candidates refuse to run as Republicans because they feel the brand is tarnished, What part is tarnished? Oh, that more Republicans believe in, you know, the sanctity of life, or they believe in God? They don't want that out there, because they know they're trying to get humanist votes. And they go, well, I'm going to hide who I am. No, you're not hiding who you are. Who you are is a neoliberal, because if you're really proud of the cross that you wore around your neck, which is a symbol for the few of us that believe in God, you couldn't hide that. You would actually say, I'm a Republican, and we would restore the brand image through dialogue in the party. See, we have to look at what it means to be a conservative and a liberal. Because if there's no difference, if there's a uni party, and there is, why do we know there is? Because there is. We know it. We all know it. We've come to the point where we know that Tucker Carlson was just deplatformed off of Fox News. We know there's a uniparty. We know that if you're Democrat or Republican, we know that six Democrats and six Republicans are the sponsors of the Restrict Act. We see the parties working together, the party hierarchy, working to impose the most restrictive anti-constitutional legislation, just like Herr Hitler was elected. And, and he, was, he was democratically elected, and then he turned Germany into a dictatorship And the people went out and ratified it in 36, adoring fans, the crowd. They loved him. Are we going to do that here? Are we going to ratify an anti-human, anti-well-being, anti-God, humanist religion that seeks to evolve the species and eliminate homo sapiens? Is that what we're going to do, Republican Party? Is that what we're going to do, Democrat Party? Hey, the Democrat Party has the same, you know, conflict working now. Got a new candidate. Robert Kennedy Jr. Go look at his platform. He sounds like a well being guy. Oh, there's an ideology coming here. There's a constituency forming. There's a platform forming about well being that is going to reject nuclear war, nuclear weapons, and science that has no interest in the well being of the people. We're heading there quickly. So let us agree that we can go look and do our own homework. Please do not take my word for this. It will make much more impact upon you if you go read Darwin and Spencer and Galton and Huxley and Bertrand Russell and Harari. Read what these people have written down. You don't have to speculate what they're working on. They tell you what they're working on. And when you fully get it, on your own by your own hard research and you realize you're living in a humanist religion that seeks to evolve you homo sapiens such that you and I are irrelevant Hey, time for a new politics right so we know the truth now the truth is coming out the truth will set us free didn't say the truth would make us happy it meant the truth will set us free of an illusion That has been perpetrated upon we the people for thousands of years. The truth shall set you free. It didn't mean you wouldn't be a slave. We're still wage slaves. It didn't mean we would still, you know, that we would be free of having our money pirated away from us through inflation, because that's still going on, right? We're not free of this business model, we're free of the illusion of the lies that have been used to imprison us in our minds, a prison for our minds. I'm free now. The truth has set me free. You're watching. I hope I'm presenting things to you so that you can do your research and you can get free and then send this out. Let's get every American citizen. You know, it's kind of in a way, I'm not thumping the Bible. It's just some of these things that are interesting. Preach the gospel to every person on the planet. You know, the truth shall set you free of these illusions. Let's work on it together. Let's get our community going. Let's have the boldness and the bravery to talk to the people around us. Send this out. Let's build this community. Let's be free of illusion, and then let's go to the next stage. Let's work on a platform of human well-being and restore the brand of human freedom. The Republican Party. Let's break with the past. There's nothing there right now worth hanging on to because $32 trillion in debt, virgin nuclear war, and a uni party. We need some change, some evolution. So thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure to join you. I enjoy it very much. It helps me get my thinking together. And if you'll do your research, your thinking's going to get stronger. And as we get stronger, We're going to have more power, and with more power, we can change this politics such that we live well. Thank you very much, and I'll see you soon again.